have no idea what I've even said. But um, turn, uh, so you're Malachi 4, and um, I think we'll start from verse 5. Actually, let's start from verse 1. For behold, the day's coming, burning like a, t- a furnace. All the arrogant and every evil doer will be like chaff, and the day of the Lord is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will even leave them, it will leave them neither root or branch. But for you who fear the name of the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You'll go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. <laughs> you can tell that the Bible was written in agricultural age. Can you imagine it was written in the information age? We'd have all these computer kind of... You'll tread upon the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day, which I am preparing, says the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to children, the hearts of children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. Interesting uh, dimension. You know, um, one of one of the uh, things that is marking this... Uh, prophetic core value like what I see is like in the Old Testament the prophets primarily prophesied against the nations uh, prophesied against Gentile nations sometimes prophesied against their own nation and um, you know the theme of the Old Testament the whole Old Testament the theme is is the power of sin and the need for a savior and so you know that the the scribes wrote about it the priests uh, they they taught about it the prophets prophesied about it the fact that sin, that sin destroys you, that you need a savior, and it's. But I, I like verses like this because they give us a core value for what it should be like in the New Testament. He says in the New Testament, he says that Elijah the prophet will come, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of chil- uh, children to their fathers. And um, I, I really believe that the Lord is doing this. Like there's this prophetic. There's kind of a, a prophetic core value here that says that prophetic ministry should be recon, should have a reconcile, reconciling element to it. Like 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. The next verse, and God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. The next verse says, and God... Um, and, um, and God has given us the ministry of reconciliation as if God was begging through us to be reconciled to God. And I, I like this, like, it just, it just shows us that one of the core values for the new covenant ministry is the reconciliation of family, families, reconciliation of relationships. And it says to us that the core value for ministry has so shifted from the ministry, um, the, kind of the ministry against the people to the ministry that, uh, that builds people up and, and sends people out. But the point I really wanted to make today and kind of take off from this place, he talks about how the prophets are ushering in um, uh, a sense of family and family restoration. And I, and I really think that uh, we're in an apostolic age. Like I think we've moved from just having apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We've moved from just uh, invention and we're moving to innovation. Like we're moving from seeing uh, God... Uh, um, anoint and and draw pastors and prophets and apostles and evangelists and teachers. He, God is causing them not just to emerge, but now we're seeing innovation. We're seeing where God we're, we're seeing God move on the fivefold ministry to start flowing together, and we're seeing that and we're seeing that this that we're moving from this denominational age, which we've been talking about for a while, where people gather around truth. We're we're moving from that into an apostolic age where the way that we see the world, the way that we measure success, the goals that we have, the core values, the way that we actually, um, the, the foundations of, of what we believe are dramatically shifting. And here he talks about the fact that Elijah the prophet will come and he will restore the hearts of fathers. And I think that one of the things that, one of, one of the primary shifts that we're seeing happen today is that we're moving from being a business, the church from being a business, from being an organization to being, or, to being an organism. And we're seeing the church move towards family, and we're starting to view the church as a family. One, one of the, uh, I was talking to Roland Baker a few days ago. He was in Holland with me. 
And um, he, we were just talking about the way that they, when people contribute to their ministry, like, it's amazing because they never ask for donations, they never take an offering for themselves. When they, they speak at conferences all over the world, they, they don't take offerings for themselves, they don't share about um, their own ministry. I mean, they, they have purposely tried to not draw attention to themselves. But what, one thing they do is that when people contribute to them, they, like if you give money to Iris Ministries, they, they find out who you are, they get your name off, off of the check, they give your name to the intercessors, their intercessors, they have this whole intercessory team all over the globe, they pray for you, they, they call you, they say, is there any way we can serve you, like you have served us, is there any way you can serve you, you're part of our family. And when you, when they, if you give them a prayer request, they'll call you back in a couple of weeks and say, we've been praying for you. How, it's, how, how is it going? And I was talking to Roland, and he said, yeah, God just told us that we're to treat the world as our family. We're to relate to the people we're ministering to as family, and we're to relate to the people who minister to us as a family. Not as an organization, but as an organism, as a family. And I was thinking that that is so a part of the new apostolic paradigm that we're moving from organization to, it's not that we're not organized, but it's not the primary, it's like, it's not the primary core driving, um, do you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, it's like, it's more important that we have, that we have a relational context to everything we're doing. And I don't know, it just really beats in my heart that, I, like, when I go places to speak, I'm really not, like, I'm interested in building relationship with people. I'm interested to, like, what is the relational context to what you're doing? Like, when I go someplace, like, what is the relational context to what you're doing? What is the relational context that you want to us coming? Like, is it just that you want us to speak someplace? Because obviously I can stay here and speak to 700 people every day if I want it to. So, and that's bigger crowds than you speak at at lots of conferences. So, I mean, the goal isn't to find some place to speak. The goal is to find places where there's a relational context for what we're doing. Does that make sense? It's amazing because, um, and, and you know, there's this father, this God, I, I think that God is moving us into this apostolic age, and part of the apostolic age is that, is that there's a reconciling kind of spirit on us to reconcile relationships, to, to be in a, a relational context, and I think it just flows into everything, like from the giving I just demonstrated through what Roland was sharing. I mean, I just think that, I think there's just something about viewing the world as a big family. And um, viewing, viewing the world from a father's perspective, as opposed to um, yeah, one of the, one of the things I was thinking about Joseph. You know uh, Joseph in the um, Old Testament, how he had this dream, and then he ends up in the prison, and then finally he comes into a place of power. Well, what's interesting is um, I was talking to uh, Lauren Cunningham the leader of YWAM, and he just made this powerful statement. I was just looking it up for myself yesterday. He said, do you know that Joseph, even though he was one of the 12 sons of uh, Israel, of Jacob, did, he, did you notice there was no tribe named Joseph? Did I tell you this, Ray? There's no tribe named Joseph. And he said, do you know why God didn't name a tribe after Joseph? Remember that Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so what they end up with is two half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. But there was no tribe of Joseph. And he made a statement that I thought was profound. He said, Joseph, when God gave Joseph uh, favor with Pharaoh, Joseph developed a strategy for Pharaoh that enslaved all of, Israel, I mean, all of Egypt. Because... What they did is, what Joseph decided to do was that the Pharaoh would grow crops. <laughs> Remember this? He would put away, what was it, uh, 20% or whatever it was. He'd put away a certain percentage for seven years of their crops. And then when there was seven years of famine, they would have all the food. But how did they use their influence? They, they had, the Egyptians had to come and buy food. And when they ran out of money, they began to sell their land to the king and it says it and it says that eventually the pharaoh owned all of egypt and the people were enslaved you see what i'm getting at joseph enslaved egypt 
through the favor that God gave him. And consequently, he didn't become a father. He didn't become a father in Israel. Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, were tribal leaders. Do you see what I'm getting at? And what I'm saying is, is that, I mean, you think, well, there could have, what, what, other, what else could he have done? Well, he could have told all the people to plant 20% more and save their crops, couldn't he have? But instead, he used his favor and his wisdom to actually benefit one person instead of benefit the body. The opposite of what a way a father thinks. Are you following me? A father isn't, isn't in the body for what he can get, but he's in the body for what he can give. It's the foundation. Apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. They, they actually create a platform for people to prosper in, not to be used. Am I making sense? And so, um, but this is good, that God is, he's creating a father, uh, he's creating a, a, a family kind of uh, DNA. And I think that we're, we're, um, we're moving into a covenant kind of relationship. You know, in the Old Testament, they would, uh, they would uh, you know, if we made a covenant, we would, we would cut an animal in half and we would walk through the blood and that, that sign, that, that prophetic act, you know, it wouldn't do any good for us to make a covenant on paper because, first of all, most people were illiterate. Like 95% of the Old Testament people were illiterate. That's why the priests read to them. You know, they, if you look at the, in the book of Nehemiah, the priests ran through the congregation reading the Bible to them from morning till night because they couldn't read. So, like, if we, if we bought a piece of land from each other, if I bought your land and, and we paid for it on payments, we would make a covenant and we would cut an animal in half and we'd walk through that blood and that, that signified that if I pay you over your dead body, would you not give me the land? And, over, over, and if, if I'm the one who's paying for the property, I'm signifying that I will keep my word, I will make these payments, otherwise you know, it would be on to death. You know what I'm saying? And um, I think that we're moving into you know, Jesus. The Old Testament is a covenant. God made a covenant with man when Jesus... Uh, the Last Supper, he, he, you know, he, um, he brought his disciples together. He made a covenant with them. God, God made a covenant with us. And so when we come into the body of Christ, we come into the family, we come in through covenant. We're like, we're, we're like here to die for one another. Not just to live for one another, but we're here to die for one another. Am I making sense? And so I think that I think God wants the body of Christ to be a family. And I think we're moving from denominationalism, where the church is basically a business. We're basically a bunch of concubines, you know, giving birth to people that we don't intend to father. And we're moving from that to an actual, uh, an actual fathering, fathering structure. Part of the struggle is, is that most of us weren't born into a family. Like, we weren't born again into a family. As a matter of fact, how many of you were actually born uh, naturally into a broken family? Yeah, so, you know, maybe almost 40% of us. And so, like, learning how to relate as a family, it feels to me like in the American church, we, like, like we hit, uh, you know, our normal mode is to deal with each other on a business level. Like, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? you know, it's like there's, like, the relational context where we actually get into each other's lives, where we actually feel responsible for one another, where we actually find a place where people would die for one another, where they would live for one another, actually having the, the, um, the revelation that, uh, that the church was born in a covenant. It was born in a, not just an agreement, it was born in a covenant where you know, people would die for one another. And realizing that, that God has called us to be a family where we don't, just, uh, we don't just live for one another, but we're willing to die for one another. There's something about laying our lives down. You look at the book of Acts, and you know when the church was born, and it says they were selling each, they were selling what they had, and they were, they were laying down, you know, the, they were laying down their their financial well-being for people who had nothing. There was some kind of there's there's some kind of a, a covenantal relationship that they had with one another. And um, one of the things that you're carrying from this house, or at least I want you to be carrying, is a sense of family. A sense of covenant. I think that if we start to view 
we start to view ourselves, and if we start to view the body of Christ as a family, it's amazing how much different, how much it will change our behavior. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like even in, in Jesus' prayer, you know, the model prayer, he said, pray our Father. Pray our Father who's in heaven. There's something about thinking corporately. There's something about thinking how your life, how your actions, how your behaviors, how your generosity. There's something about you learning, me learning to think as a corporate body as opposed to as an individual. You know, Romans says that, um, that we're individual members of one another. So there is a sense of individual. There is a sense that I am an individual. It's like I don't lose my identity to be a part of this family, but I need to learn how to think corporately. I need to learn how to think as a family. I need to, I need to be thinking about how my actions, how my attitudes, how my behaviors, and actually how my destiny flows together with your destiny. Because the Bible says that we are all individual members of one another. If you don't come completely into your destiny, if Karen doesn't come completely into her destiny, Randy doesn't come completely into her des- his destiny, it's going to affect everyone in this room. There is a peace... Do you know what I'm saying? There's a piece of your destiny inside of all the people that you're relationally connected with. Like, the body of Christ isn't just a metaphor, it's a reality. Are you following me? Sometimes we take the, you know, the metaphoric uh, meetings of the Bible so far that we lose the reality that the body is supposed to be a family. You know, I, I think I probably have shared this with you, but it's, it's such a powerful truth to me that Judas, you know, here's Judas, he's, you know, he's interacting with Jesus, he's, you know, he's, you know they're, they're sleeping next to each other, they're with each other for three and a half years. You know, there's something about, like, being on the ministry team, but yet not being a part of the family. I wish I could really convey what's deep in my heart today, and I, I feel like I'm struggling some, part of me, partly a little jet lag, but... There, there's something about a guy who's totally doing the ministry, but for some reason he doesn't have a heart connection. And it's so manifest, and I know I shared this with you the other day, it's so manifest in my mind that, you know, in some ways Judas has a friendship with the team. I mean, he's getting along with people. And he doesn't even stand out as the problem till you get to the end of the Gospels, does he? I mean, you know, uh, P- uh, James and John have a bad temper. Jesus calls them sons of thunder. I mean, they're in, they're in trouble two or three times throughout the Gospels, aren't they? Because of their temper, and Jesus teases them, but he also corrects them about their spirit, right? I mean, Peter's always in trouble. I mean, he's in, he's in trouble from the day he meets Jesus till the end. Obviously, Thomas is in trouble because he's always the guy that doesn't have faith for anything. I mean, Jesus is basically not mentioned except for the fact that he's, he's stealing. <laughs> That's kind of a problem. It's like, yeah, one of our brothers has this little problem, you know. He steals the offering, you know. But at the end of his life, you know, he, Jesus makes a statement. He says, you know, uh, he said, let's make a covenant. And he starts to say, this is my body um, that's broken for you. This is my blood that's poured out for you. And I don't know if you can get the feel for this night. You know, here they are. They're all together. Jesus has been saying to them, for three years, I'm going to die. It says that when they told him that, when, when Jesus told them that he had to die, it, the Bible says that they didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't get it. They were like, oh yeah, everyone's going to die someday. You know, it was just like, it just didn't. And then Jesus takes them in the upper room, and he says, now this is my body. And he takes a piece of bread, and he says, now listen, I've been telling you this for three years. This is my body, and he breaks it, and he goes, and it's broken for you. As soon as he starts to make a covenant with them, this is the blood in the new covenant. Judas goes, time for me to get out of here. It's time for me to get out of here. And you know, we talked about this, but it's such a powerful statement that I think that I think that Judas spirit is so on, I was going to say on um, in America, but I can see that it's a global thing, that so many people want intimacy. You know, Judas, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So many people want intimacy without covenant. They want the benefits of the covenant, 
But they don't want to die for one another. They don't, they're not actually a part of the family. You know, Jude makes some powerful statements that I think that are, that are alarming. You ever have verses you like, but you don't know what they mean? This is kind of the Jude verse. Listen to this. Um, yeah, here they are. Verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and things which they know by instinct. Um, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For, the, for pay they have rushed headlong in the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. They are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves clouds without water, carried about by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Look at this, verse 16. They are grumblers, finding fault, falling after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. How do you make sure that you don't become that? I know, you know, today, this afternoon's simple message, but in my mind, it's like, it's like there's something about being a part of a family, where you're not there for just for yourself, that you're there to share your life. Like, your your life is like bread, and it's broken for one another. The, the, it's like wine, where your blood is poured out for one another. There's something about moving from a denominational mindset, where where you know. You know, part of denominationalism is this. I'd rather be right than be together. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? In denominationalism, it's like we divide because we disagree. Do, do you understand? It's like the problem isn't even that we disagree. The problem isn't it, that we can't have an argument over something. The struggle is deeper than that. The struggle is, is that we don't, we don't have this together. We don't, we're not in covenant together where we've chosen to die for each other. So it's really easy for us to find something we can't agree about and then decide that we should go our own way. But there's something that's happening in the very DNA, in the very DNA of the body. There's something, there's something that's attracting the cells of the body to begin to flow together as a body and, to, and take on form. You know, it says that in the Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit hovered over the over the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And that word formless and void is the word chaos. I see the Holy Spirit like hovering over the body, and there's all these cells. You know, like each one of us is a stone, a living stone. You know, that, what a great picture, a pre-scientific picture, living stones. What a great pre-scientific picture of cells that were like cells to the body. And that what it takes for us to actually become a body is for us to invite another, you know, the, the cell that's next to us to be a part of us and for us to begin to realize that the body of Christ was designed to be interdependent. Not independent and not codependent. See, codependent means that we are in this relationship together and that the ecosystem that we create feeds each other's dysfunction. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's like uh, it's like dad's an alcoholic, and and mom is always covers for him. She's, oh, your dad didn't mean that. She runs around cleaning up his messes, and she's a peacekeeper. She's not a peacemaker. She's a peacekeeper, and she runs around keeping dad from the pain of his problem. And so she creates a codependent relationship with him. You know, or dad's really harsh, so mom's really merciful. And they create this codependent relationship where she's overly merciful. She's like sympathetic instead of compassionate. She's got this human thing going on. And the more, more merciful she is, the more harsh dad is because dad thinks, you know, you know what I'm saying? And we create a, we create a codependent relationship where we, where we create an ecosystem that actually sustains our dysfunction. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an interdependent relationship. An interdependent relationship where we realize that life is supposed to flow from person to person. And that, with, you know, that I need you in my life. I don't need you in a dysfunctional way. 
I need you because you are a part of the rest of the body. And that without you in my life, there's something missing. And I can't just have you run. I can't have my finger just decide it doesn't want to be a part of me and just run off. Are you, are you, you understand where I come from? I was in, um, when I was in Holland, there was a prophetess there named Angela. And she had this uh, dream. And in this dream, she saw, she saw a uh, tuning fork. In the dream, and uh, God struck the tuning, the fork. She didn't know anything about uh, about um, music. I I don't really know anything about e- music either. But she struck the, in the in the dream. God struck the tuning fork, and the note uh, A came out of it. And she was like doing all this stuff, and and I I've been. It's funny because I haven't had a dream of a tuning fork, but I've had these uh, visions in my mind that uh, you know when you. Uh, when you use a tuning fork, like if you if you have the the letter A or E or whatever, when you strike that tuning fork, the, the A chord on the guitar string will begin to vibrate, and everything that has an A that is tuned to A will vibrate A. And one of the things I think that's happening, I, I was talking to Dano uh, McCollum. You guys know Dano, amazing guy, and he was telling me that every because your DNA has numbers to it that your DNA can actually put, be put into a synthesizer and actually can be changed to a sound. And he's, he, was, he was telling me, in fact, if you, uh, I did a great interview with him um, just the other day, and it's on my website. If you want to get on kvministries.com, I think it is, there's an interview with Dano. And he does a better job of talking about this. But he said that everybody actually, everybody's DNA is actually a song. Is that amazing? And I think that there's uh, there's something about tribes and families and tribal DNA. You know, you know, there's sometimes when somebody strikes the tuning fork of their life, and you find your heart reverberating to that sound. Do you know what I'm getting at? And uh, I feel like the Lord is making the body like uh, it's like a symphony. A sym- symphony a symphony and everyone has their you know their instrument everyone's an instrument and there are times when you hear the father's voice in your life and you go i know that's my father because that's my sound you know jesus said this way my sheep know my voice it's interesting that word voice is the word phone it's almost like my sheep know have my number you know, a shepherd would, you know, they, they would have, you know, there would be water in Israel and all the shepherds would come down with their sheep and the sheep would all be mixed together. Like in Romania, I've been to Romania, there's just thousands of sheep. And just like the shepherds, I mean, you still wear the, you know, whatever, I, in my little kid's Bible, they look just like the shepherds in my little kid's Bible, you know. Maybe they took pictures of the Romanians, I don't know. But I've watched them in Romania where they just go down to a pond and all these sheep will be in there. And then the shepherd starts to, you know, he leaves and he starts to just call to his sheep. And all these sheep look exactly alike, you know, I mean, pretty much. They all look exactly alike. You couldn't separate them if you wanted to. But the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And when the shepherd starts to walk, it's amazing. He doesn't drive them. He just speaks to them. And as he speaks to them, they begin to follow him. Are you with me? There's something about this, this fathering movement where we come into the body through covenant and yet the, the body has a national identity, but it also has a tribal identity. And in the midst of tribes, there's families. And, and it's part of like, you know, you see what I'm getting at? It's like we're moving from organization to an organism, but even the organism has an organization to it. There's, there's something about what God's doing that, that has an organi- organi- organization, but it's like, a, yeah, it's like an organism. It's like it's organized for life and not organized for the sake of control. There's a difference between organizing for life and organizing for control. And um, I think that, you know, Paul makes a statement. Let's see if I think I have it right here. I don't even know if I'm making sense today. 
As soon as I stood up here, I was like, oh, man. Um, listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For, you have, for if you were to have countless tutors or teachers in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, listen to this, be imitators of me. For this reason, what reason? Be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everyone everywhere in every church. Well, that's such a powerful statement. You know, in denominationalism, you're like, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's interesting, because look at how Paul opens 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Let me see if I can find it real fast. Yeah, here it is. Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, beloved, by the Chios people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and whoever, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. <laughs> you could tell he's not writing on a computer, right? Because you would just, you go, oh yeah, I did baptize that house. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. Take that off, Luke, you know, whatever. Um, you, you know, here's an interesting contrast. He, said, he, he, he opens the letter with saying, some of you are saying you're a Paul. Some of you are saying of Apollos. Some of you are saying of Cephas. And he goes, is Christ divided? And then the same book, in the fourth chapter, for you, have, you may have countless teachers in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ I have become your father through the gospel, therefore be entertainers of me. And if you read on, you know that much of 1 Corinthians and a lot more even 2 Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship and he's saying that you, he tells them, you are my apostleship. And I think it's in the fourth chapter. He says, listen to this. Now there are, verse 18. But some have become arrogant as though I were not coming. I will come soon, and if the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And if you read on, he's talking about people who are trying to make the Corinthian church, they're trying to father the Corinthian church. And, he, and they're saying, we are your apostles. And he's saying, no, no, I'm your apostle. Listen, you might have many teachers. Listen, they could be your teacher, but I'm your father. And then you'll notice, like in 2 Corinthians, he talks about he's been shipwrecked, he's been, you know, he's been, he's, he's had been whipped, he's been beaten. And what's his point? He says, yeah, they, if, if they are apostles, how about me? I far more. And he says, should I boast foolishly? But what's his point? What's the point of Corinthians, of much of Corinthians? He's, he, he defends the fact that he is their apostle and that the people that are coming in and trying to take over their church, he's saying, I'm going to test, their, I'm going to test them, not their words, but their power. Well, where, am I, where am I going with this? I'm saying that there's, there's a, there is a divine paradox in the body of Christ. First thing I'm saying is this, that the body of Christ is moving from an organization to an organism. That part of the organism is that we're becoming we're becoming a family. And that in the family, there are fathers. And that there, there are fathers like tribal fathers. And that you know what tribe you're, you, you belong to. How do I know what tribe I belong to? Because when they hit the tuning fork of their life, you reverberate with the same sound. And you go, I didn't even know it, but that string, that string begins to vibrate in me. And I go, I know I'm supposed to be in this tribe. Now, I can't maybe intellectually figure it out. I can't you know, figured out geographically, I wasn't born into this family, or whatever, whatever the, all the logistics are, but you, but you hear that sound reverberating in you when that note is hit by the apostolic voice. And you go, that is my shepherd. And here's the dichotomy, here's the paradox. On one hand, Paul opens his letter with saying, some of you say you're a Cephas, some of Paul, 
some, you know, some of Apollos. Is Christ divided? And you, when, he, when he opens the letter, you think that he's going to talk about the fact that there, that there is no tribal identity. But he opens with that, with that as his primary foundation, but then he talks about the fact through all of Corinthians that he is their father, and actually he said, listen, you are of me. I am your father. Now, how do you reconcile that with the first chapter? Because he says there's quarrels among you about who's your father. And then he said, is Christ divided? And here's my point. When your tribal identity takes the place of your national identity, you have overemphasized your tribe. Are you with me? In other words, our identity, our, our national identity is Christ. If you overemphasize your tribal identity, pretty soon you... Let's see if I can put this into words. I can see it in a picture. Sometimes when I'm speaking, I see things in pictures. I'm like, okay, let's put this in words in a way that's accurate. He's not saying that Apollos doesn't, isn't a father, that Peter isn't a father. He's not saying... He's saying, listen, you're quarreling because you have so emphasized Peter that you've missed the fact that Peter is a part of the body of Christ. And when you emphasize your tribal identity above your national identity, you have overemphasized your apostleship, and you begin, it begins to be a weird controlling thing. It begins to be a competition thing. Well, I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Apollos. Instead of a fatherly way that you interact with those who have authority in your life. You guys got that look. Is this boring? I can't really tell. I'm so... Now look at this. He says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. That word imitator, that word imitator is the word mimic, to mime. We say, listen, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. Listen... That was not the attitude of the early church. The early church did not say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. They said, I'm in Jesus, follow me, and as you follow me, you're following Christ. Now, you know that that also has a tension, because you can, start, you can get back to the first chapter, and you can, start, you can be so like, I'm following Bill. Do you understand that? I like the, I like the fact that he opens the, chapter, the, the book with, is Christ divided, and he begins to talk to them that it's about Christ. But listen, it's not so about Christ that it doesn't have a body. Christ, you know, what would, what would Christ be without the body? I mean, you'd have a, head, a, a bodiless head or a headless body, depending on how you looked at it. You can't, God, when God speaks to us, he doesn't separate the head from the body. He, over and over, he emphasizes, like, I am a full body. I'm not just a head. Neither am I just a body without a head. I am a full body. So he says, listen, Paul says, listen, I want you to imitate me. I am your father. I want you to imitate me. Why do I want you to imitate me? Because I'm your father. Okay, now, I'm going to send you my best son, Timothy. Because of this, I'm going to send you Timothy. Now, now, he really knows my ways. It's interesting the way he, he puts it. He doesn't say he knows God's ways. He says he knows my ways, which are in Christ. Are you following me? He makes it, they're in Christ, but, but, he start, but, he, but his emphasis is he teach, he'll teach you my ways, which are in Christ. Can you feel the difference between... It's almost like in denominationalism, you don't want the responsibility to father anybody so you can live like hell and tell people not to follow you. It's like, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Well, why don't, why don't you get your life together so when I look at you, I'm looking at Jesus? I mean, that's the goal. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
I'm not the Father any more than Jesus was the Father. I'm not God. This isn't Mormonism. But I am supposed to be so in Christ that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to take the responsibility... Listen, it's irresponsible to say, don't look at me. It's irresponsible to say that. That's, you're, you're supposed to say, look at me. Listen, find Christ in me. Listen, if you connect with me, you're connecting with Christ. How do you connect? Listen, if you connect, connect if, if you touch my hand, my head's involved. My head goes, oh, she's, her hands are warm. My, my, whole, my, whole, my whole five-fold ministry right here is involved right here. You can't connect with my hand and not connect with my head. People are like, I just want the face of God. I don't want the hand of God. Well, that's stupid. Those metaphors are ridiculous. They're not part of the Bible. <laughs> Lots of good word right there. I'm starting to feel better now. It's, it's time for us to learn how to think. Okay, follow this. It's time for us to learn how to think like a family. It's time for us to learn how to think like a family. I was at a place recently where we we're going to do evangelism. I'm going to go out in the street and do evangelism. I don't know. It's like, what are we saving people to? I said, what are we saving these people to? We say, follow me. Are we going someplace they can follow? I mean, do we have some place to take care of them? Or what are we doing with these people? Like, we're going to preach to them. Okay. I don't know. So much, so much uh, ministry is more about us feeling good about ourselves than it is about actually having an impact. I'm telling you, I just, I'm not trying to be critical. But I mean, there's something about being able to tell someone that you led 20 people last week in a prayer. I'm going I'm to tell you, I know this is wrong. I'll say it anyway. I, I have no desire to do that. I have no desire to, to do weddings that somebody doesn't actually want a marriage. I just, I, there's no motivation for me to like lead somebody in a prayer, to be totally honest. And I don't mean like Sunday or whatever that they're you know, on a pl- I, I'm just I make like what I'm getting at is like it, it may be, it's a, it's a means to an end, but if the end isn't clear, like I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in doing weddings for people who don't actually want to marry. And I don't want to mistake the marriage for the wedding. Well, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I'm like, that isn't the only scripture in the Bible. I'm sorry, those are, that's the scripture that we like to use to make sure we feel good about ourselves. But I'm not sure that's the only scripture in the Bible. I had never heard Jesus preach that. Uh, wait, it's in the Bible. I understand that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to say it's not important. I, di- I've never, I never saw Jesus lead a person to Christ that way. I never had Jesus go, everyone bow their heads. Okay, if you want my, if you want to be in the kingdom, what I want you to do is raise your hand. I see that hand right there. <laughs> I, I, what I'm getting at, listen, what I, this, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying let's make it really hard. So people have to sacrifice to get into the kingdom. Because it's not about their sacrifice, it's about His. My point is, is that let's make sure that people are being saved into a family. That's my point. My point is, like, let's, make sure that, let's make sure that the children that are being produced are being produced from the bridal chamber out of loving husband and a loving bride having intercourse together, I don't mean that now, I'm not using that term sexually right now, I'm using it, I'm using it, as, uh, as, I'm using it in the spiritual sense that as we have intercourse with the Father, that we produce children naturally. 
I'm talking about the intercourse. I'm talking about when we have heart, deep heart to heart, out of that. See, it says that Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and Abel. The word knew there is not the word sexual intercourse. Although I've heard somebody say that to the It's not true. It's the word yada. And there is another word, which I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. It's a Hebrew word. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I looked up about maybe two years ago, and I was doing a study for uh, actually my class on sex. And there is another word for the word sexual intercourse in the the Hebrew. It's not the word yada. The Bible assumes that you know that Adam and Eve had intercourse, sexual intercourse. What it doesn't assume is, is that you understand that not only did they have a physical intercourse, but that you, they, they does, it, is, it doesn't assume that you know that they had yada. Yada means a deep personal relationship. That they had a deep personal relationship that Cain and Abel were born out of. It knows that it, it assumes that you would know that they had sex. It doesn't assume that you would know that they had yada. Are you following me? In fact, yada, the word yada is used for interaction with God. And what I'm getting at is this. uh, God, when it says, and God knew David, it's the same word yada. It's not talking about any kind of a sexual act with David or any kind of a spiritually sexual. It's talking about the deep personal relationship that children are supposed to be born out of. It's not supposed to, listen, I'm, what I'm getting at is that evangeliz, evangelism shouldn't be a one-night stand. It shouldn't be like I knocked up this girl and I have no idea, I had no idea she was pregnant. You see, see, that's concubines. Who's your daddy? I don't know his name. Remember I told you this uh, two weeks ago. I said that the difference between concubines and wives is that the concubines did not carry the king's name and their children had no inheritance. Who's your daddy? It's not important. Are you following me? And what I'm getting at is that you, I believe that you are the first modern generation to carry a true apostolic DNA where you're no longer satisfied with people raising their hands you're no longer, I mean, this is not supposed to be a global orphanage where we brag about how many people are in our orphanage every Sunday. It's supposed to be a body where people are in covenant together. Right? They're not, they're not arguing over the offering because they're not stealing from the offering. When people are part of a family, you don't have to tell them to give 10% because they're willing to give whatever it takes to be, you know, I'm just using examples. Like when you talk about tithing and people go like this with their wallet, church is always trying to get my money. Listen, there's something deeper than the thing that's on your butt. If you're protecting 10% of your income, it tells me that there's something else going on. First of all, Malachi begins in chapter 3 which says, you're robbing God, all of you. How are we robbing you? In your tithes and your offerings. Judas is robbing... He's robbing the offering. And what is one of the manifestations? When somebody puts, pours a year's worth of wages on Jesus, he's nervous. He's the first guy to say, hey, this is a waste we could give this to the poor. Listen, he isn't, the Bible says he wasn't interested in the poor. What was his problem? His problem was that he was stealing from the offering, so when someone's generous, it makes him feel really uncomfortable. See, I, I can feel great as long as you're not giving anything, I'm not giving anything. But when someone creates a culture where you give it all, that makes me really uncomfortable. So I have to, I have to listen, do you understand, like, he, he doesn't care about the poor, Luke says. He's not complaining because he actually cares about the poor, but he's stealing from the offering. What does that have to do with her pouring it over his, over her pouring a year's worth of yeah, perfume over his Jesus' head? Because suddenly 
somebody starts to create a culture where giving it all is required. And he's not only is he not giving, he is stealing. What happens when you begin to teach on giving and tithing in the body of Christ? I can tell you that if you have any of that Judas thing in you, it rises up and you start protecting your pocketbook. But what's the real issue? Listen, if you have an issue of giving 10% of your income, then you aren't giving 100% of your life. The only problem I have with people arguing over whether tithe is New Testament is this. I have never, I personally, I personally have never argued with someone over whether a tithe is a New Testament principle except for that they didn't tithe. No, that they didn't give less. If someone said, listen, I give 25% and I don't think the tithe's for today, I'd be like, I have no argument. But everybody who I've ever got into a theological argument about the tithe is giving less. They're giving less. So they're arguing over whether the tithe's for today, not so they can defend generosity, but so they can depend, defend being cheap. And what's my whole point? If you're part of the body and you've died to yourself, and listen, you entered into the covenant by dying to yourself. Did you get that? Mm -hmm. See, Jesus and I are walking through the Lamb. When I came to Christ, I didn't come by raising my hand. I didn't come by repeating a prayer. Listen, raising my hand, repeating a prayer, standing up, coming forward, confessing Christ, those are all a means to... that. that listen... I didn't marry my wife because we had a ceremony. We had a ceremony because I married my wife. Are, you see what I'm getting at? I don't have any problem with the ceremony. Stand up, confess, pray a prayer, come forward, stand on your head, run around. It makes no difference to me. You understand? I don't have a problem with how you do the marriage and the wedding. The only problem I have is thinking that the wedding is the marriage. That's the problem I'm having. If you, have a if you have a marriage, then having a wedding makes good sense. Stand up, stand up, raise your hand, confess, do whatever, you, whatever your deal is. Whatever you feel you know, the thing should be. It, it, it really doesn't matter to me. I think it's important for somebody to, to do something physical so for their sake, not for the heaven's sake. For their sake, they can say, I raised my hand that day. It's my line of demarcation. It's my Jordan River. I raised my hand. I came forward. It's for me, though. It didn't save me any more than dipping in the river seven times made the leper clean. It, wa it wasn't the water. As long as I don't make it about the water. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? As long as I don't say, it's in the water. You dip seven times, there's something about the water. No, it isn't about the water. It's about doing what you were asked to do, whatever the act of faith is. If you want Jesus, stand up. Great, great. What's that about? It's about I take an act of faith. I create some kind of demarcation where I go, yes, I'm in the kingdom. Well, I'm not in the kingdom because I stood up. I'm in the kingdom because I wanted to be married. Do you see? I know it's a fine line, but there's huge difference in the core of what we're talking about. And so when I come into the kingdom, I'm saying, I die to me. I live for him. If, the, if, you, if someone talks about an offering and you have a struggle with the offering, then something is alive that was supposed to have died. Because you're supposed to be... You know, you're supposed to be Christ. Well, 10% of my money, I don't know if that's God's. No, you're right. It, it, he owns it all. And if you've ever followed, if you've followed Christ for very long, you know at times he tells you to give it all. You go, God, I'll give you 10%. He says, no, I'll require 100 this week. Well, God, if I, give, uh, if I give it all, I don't have anything else. Yeah, that's the point. That's what we're learning right now. And there are times when God goes, I, this week I don't believe in tithing. <laughs> we'll be doing 80% this week. Come on, has anyone ever, God ever asked you to do something that you absolutely could, was beyond your ability to do? Absolutely he does. And you can tell God about a tithe while you sit there giving your 80% or whatever. Do you see what I'm getting? Uh, I don't know how I got off on this subject. Uh, it's not about money. There are ways that you know where your heart is. 
Follow me. The Lord sets up places where he, in, for, where he intends to offend us. But the offense isn't so that we'll draw back, so that, but so that we'll press forward. And God goes, maybe yours isn't money. Like for me, money's not a big deal. Like some people, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not very frugal. So, and I love to give. So it's like, I just like to give. So it's not a big deal for me. So maybe your, maybe your deal isn't money. Maybe it's service or maybe it's control. Like no one tells me what to do. Well, that's a bummer because you're supposed to be a slave to Christ. Why don't you tell your boss what you just said to me and see how it works out for you? Funny that people will do for money what they won't do for love. And what, and what happens? It, it, it shows you that there's something in your heart that needs to be dealt with. Come on, do you ever run into those? I run into them all the time. I'm like, owie, that hurt. What was that? It's funny that sometimes as you get older in the Lord, see, this is the way it was. I felt like a... I felt like I was in a porcupine farm when I first came to Christ. <laughs> Everything hurt. Every message hurt. Ah, that hurts. Ah. <laughs> ah, that hurts too. How many of you heard that? Like someone could preach on anything. It's like, ah, that, life, that part of my life is screwed up too. And ah, so is that. And it's like, ooh, that hurt too. Whoa, wow, ooh. <laughs> As you get older in the Lord, those of you that are older in the Lord, I find that, I find that, it's odd things that prick my heart. Someone will be sharing a testimony and like, ah, that hurt. That's not a testimony. I'm like, that's the area of my life that's just not together yet, you know? Yeah, ah, that really hurt, you know? But it's, it, it doesn't hurt. I mean, when you're, in, when you're in covenant, it doesn't hurt in a way that you withdraw. It's kind of like, ah, yeah, you go to the doctor. And you and he and you say you know he says uh, you know you hurt you hurt your leg and he goes does it hurt here does it hurt here how many of you know he's not like trying to torture you he's trying to help you and and the pain tells him where you need help at right and the Lord Doctor Jesus does that the great physician he goes does it hurt here you ah ow Zang what are you trying to kill me. Right? Doesn't that happen? He says, now you are clean. Right? John 15. Now you are clean by the word I spoke to you. That word clean is the word pruned. How many of you have been in a, in a someplace someone's preaching and they just cut off one of your arms? And the Lord goes, you're clean now. You're like... <laughs> He's all, don't worry about it. It'll grow back. <laughs> and when it does this time... It, anyway, well... What time am I supposed to be done at? Was it three? Three? What time was? Uh, what time was? Oh, three twenty. Okay. So, are you flowing with me? It's like we're be, we're becoming a body. We're thinking like a body. We're not thinking like denominational. We're not denominationalism. You understand? I, I don't, I'm not talking about. I don't care. You know, I've said this over and over, but there's a few visitors in here. I'm not talking about like you're a Baptist. You're doing something wrong or a Pentecostal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the mindset. So please forgive me if it sounded any other way. But like, I, I want us to just begin to think as a family. And when I think as a family, I begin to think, how are my actions affecting the rest of the cells? Because otherwise, you know, the fastest growing cell in a body is a cancer cell. But you know what a cancer cell does? It begins to live for itself. It lives for itself and it begins to suck the nutrition that's, that's supposed to be allocated for the whole body, it sucks it into a tumor until it begins to little by little suck off, draw off all the nutrients from the rest of the body, and its whole purpose is to make itself live. Now, just because you got, you're growing something doesn't mean it's good. I was in a place, this is several years ago, I was in a place where a youth pastor was preaching a message. It wasn't here, it wasn't at Bethel at all. It's actually at a conference I was at. And this youth pastor was preaching a message, and the message was, was actually about rebelling against the machine. It was actually about, you know, the governments and how they're trying to take over the, the, the school system, and, and we should rise up against the machine. And, 
It's like that. What what are you doing? You're feeding rebellion. You're justifying the means because the end is good. That's a good word, actually. Your response wasn't good, but I was just thinking about whether I said it right or... Luke uh, chapter 24, this is kind of cool. Jesus is with the disciples. They don't know he's Jesus. This is after he rose from the dead. And they're walking with him. They're talking. And, you know, and he's saying, why is everybody sad? And they said, well, don't you know the Christ died today? And he's like, the who, the what? You know, he's just kind of playing dumb with them. And, but he's, but he's also talking to them about himself through the Old Testament. Remember that? And this is kind of cool. Verse 15, And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Verse 30, And when he had uh, reclined at the table with them, because they invited him in. This is really cool. This, I, I love this. I think it's four times it says that Jesus intends, like he's walking on the water and they're in the boat, and they're all, like, oh, we're dying, we're dying, we're dying. And it says that Jesus, is, he sees them in the boat, right? This is interesting. He sees them in the boat, point one. His, they're his best friends, point two. Point three, he knows they're in a storm. Point four, because he sees them in that situation, it says he walks on the water, point five, he intends to pass them by. <laughs> he intends to pass them by. <laughs> this is kind of funny. I wonder how many times I haven't gone, help! Because I think, you know, of course God wants to rescue me. He's like, no, he likes to walk by while you're in trouble, just see what... Hey, boys, how you doing there? <laughs> See you on the other side. And then here, you know, Jesus is talking with them. It says their heart is burning within them. And it says he intends to go on. He intends to go on. And they go, hey, you know, it's late. Why don't you have dinner with us? And listen, to, I love this part. It says, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then, then, I like this, then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished. Now, he was teaching them all kinds of truth, right? When did they have a revelation of him? When, he made, when they made covenant, when he took communion. See, there's something about revelation that needs a context of covenant. There's something about God saying, I pour out, I pour out new wine and new wineskins. Part of the new wineskin is that when we make covenant with each other, God, it creates a context in which God can pour out new re- revelation because we're not gathering because we agree. We're gathering because we are part of a family. And when we're co- part of a family, God can reveal something to one person that the other person may not agree with yet. Why? Because he doesn't risk destroying the family over a disagreement about doctrine. Which creates a beautiful context where God can pour out new revelation on a whole bunch of people and it doesn't unglue us as a family because we're not gathering because we agree. We're gathering because we've heard the shepherd's voice. In the midst of that, there's always the Jude verses. I'll read it to you one more time because I'm feeling something on it. I don't know what it means. I read these all the time. Uh, I don't know what they mean. But they mean something. Listen to this. They're hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame, like foam, wandering stars. You can kind of get a picture. I mean, obviously he's talking in a, like a, it's like a poetic metaphor, isn't it? But he's not wandering stars. They're out of. They're not in anyone's orbit. Wild waves of the sea. There's autumn trees, autumn, but there's no fruit. There's clouds, but no rain. 
They feast with you without fear. People who just connect, but they're in it for themselves. Can you feel the contrast? On one hand, we come into the body, we make a covenant to die for one another. But there's always autumn trees without fruit. People who aren't connected. Stars, but they're wandering stars. They're not in anyone's orbit. Not in anybody's order. There's no order to what they do. They're just blown by the wind. funny um revelation he uh he talked to the um, jesus one of the messages to the church at ephesus the message to the church of ephesus is that in the book of revelation is that you tested those who say they are apostles and are not there's a lot of people running around i'm an apostle i'm a prophet it's like well if you're a cloud i want to see it rain and if you're a tree, I want to see the fruit. And if you're a star, I want to know whose orbit you're in. Because you weren't made to be a wandering star or a cloud without rain or a tree that can't bear fruit in autumn. We have about five or six minutes. Anybody want to make a comment or something? Yeah, just stand right there, Erica. Just make it from there. Okay. Question or comment or whatever. Sometimes I, I leave and I think, oh God, I can't evangelize anymore because I can't pastor all these people. And I know that's not what you're saying. So where I just need some help walking this out. It's amazing, you know, the good Samaritan's famous not for helping a man, but for getting someone else to. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have